So you're going to need a little bit of a glossary for this particular episode. And all of these things are incredibly sexy, so stand by. The first thing is called ALEC, and that's an acronym for the American Legislative Exchange Council. And they craft right-wing model legislation language and distribute it to state and federal lawmakers for use and implementation. We also mentioned gun sanctuary ordinances and what these are are model language that is being used by county commissioners or county board of supervisors to give ultimate authority to sheriffs to determine whether or not they will in fact abide by state and federal law when it comes to enforcing gun control laws. And then we make a very passing mention of what else? Anti-masking sheriffs. Because I'll be dipped in shit if it wouldn't be 2020 without an anti-masking sheriffs movement. Now, on with the show. There are thousands of law enforcement agencies in the United States. But then there's the county sheriff. And the sheriff is unique. In... California is is the, I think, only state in which sheriffs are also coroners. That's Jessica Pishko. She's a political consultant working with nonprofits. She was a visiting fellow at the Rule of Law Collaborative at the University of South Carolina. Her JD is from Harvard, and she also has an MFA in writing from Columbia University. Today on Dead to Me, Jessica and I talk about sheriffs as coroners and go down the rabbit hole that is sheriff accountability. So as she mentions here that California is the only state that still allows elected sheriffs to also act as county coroners. And as you may imagine, this poses certain problems. This is from KQED in California. The county's chief forensic pathologist, Dr. Bennett Omalu, is alleging a pattern of abuse in which the sheriff has interfered with his work and disregarded the findings of autopsies. The nationally recognized pathologist wrote notes detailing his concerns about Sheriff Coroner Steve Moore. He wrote that the sheriff had withheld information, and in three cases involving people who died either in custody or during arrest, Moore certified the death as an accident instead of a homicide, as Omalu believes the medical findings indicated. Omalu's colleague, Dr. Susan Parson, quit her job with the county last week, saying she had lost faith in the ability to work independently. KQED goes on to report that there were more instances that caused grave concern for the doctors, and one of which I found personally most disturbing is that sheriff's deputies or members of the sheriff's department went around the county medical examiners and ordered the hands of several victims to be removed. And so this is where Jessica and I start down that weird rabbit hole. In California is is the, I think, only state in which sheriffs are also coroners. And I suspect that that connection comes from the fact that coroners are also a job that dated back to English common law. And so not a lot of people have, I 
probed into this, although I think it's worth poking at a little bit, um, is the fact that coroners are also sort of an old position that people would have in many, in some places they are elected, um, in some places they are not. The most important job they have always had was to basically conduct an inquest on the deceased and investigate how they died. Back when they first came around, their primary job was actually to collect the taxes on the estates of those who died. It was always an administrative government position. As time went on and medicine got better and we developed fields of forensic pathology, which is sort of the medical equivalent of what I think we would think of as someone who would conduct an autopsy. Some states started to transition over to coroners being forensic pathologists. So in a few states, the coroner must be a forensic pathologist. In a few states, the coroner is not a forensic pathologist, but they work with forensic pathologists. So in the case of Dr. Amalu, he is a forensic pathologist who I think works in a few different counties. He's affiliated with University of California at Davis. He was a person who had noticed that for the sheriff, the coroner was changing the cause of death of the certificate so as to not make certain deaths appear to be basically homicides, instead be natural causes. Um, and I think that this is something where we just don't know the extent of the problem. We know that when we look at police custody deaths, including shooting deaths that might be on video, but when we look at in custody deaths in jails, the information available is generally pretty bad. And it's not uncommon to see a quite a lot of deaths that are described as quote unquote natural causes. But when you look at the individual, it might be, a, I've had this experience where I've looked at um, a list of deaths at a jail and they will say natural causes, but they might be pretty healthy 20 something, 30 something men who have no chronic conditions. And so the idea that they had a natural death seems unlikely. Accessing autopsy materials and information can be quite difficult because of HIPAA laws, it, it seems quite likely that, you know, sometimes natural deaths might be something more like um, deaths that could have been caused by something like an accidental overdose or um, some sort of withdrawal, you know, something in, in that category, but it's very hard to say. Um, I, I know that in that particular case, in that particular situation, Dr. Amalu came forward um, he is now barred from discussing it, so I don't know that we'll know more um, until the point in time at which they have resolved what's going on. He has he has said he's not at liberty to make any public comments because there are ongoing, I think, related lawsuits and investigations. I, one thing I noticed is that California only recently allowed county by county to make those decisions about who is actually going to be a coroner or who is actually going to. So they've they've put a Band-Aid on a larger issue by kicking it over to like the Board of Supervisors, which, you know, is a crapshoot uh, and with no unified system. Yes. So I, California, it was in response to that, it, in response to those particular, yeah, in response to that particular incident, they passed a law that said, that some counties would need to replace their coroner with a medical examiner, which is true in some counties in California, like I think San Francisco 
and San Diego, they have a certified for forensic pathologist who is the coroner. And so they did pass legislation that, are, that said um, that some counties need to replace their coroner with a medical examiner. In San Joaquin County, which is the county in which they discovered that this particular sheriff had been changing the cause of death, um, the supervisors, the board of supervisors voted to remove him as the coroner right away. So they actually moved pretty fast. They removed him as the coroner and put in a medical, you know, a medical examiner, which I think is what most people expect, you know, that their coroner would be. Um, I was trying to, see, I'm looking, I don't know that there's other offices where they are as a coroner. I know for sure a few counties in, a few counties in California are the only ones I know of. Um, in some places though, the coroner is other unusual people. So like sometimes they're, they are elected in, I think like Indiana, um, in Nebraska corners are often the county attorney, which is sort of the equivalent of the uh, prosecutor. So they're, they're elected. So that's, I mean, they, you know, they have sort of other strange arrangements that <laughs> don't really match. It's conceivable there would be in Nebraska, if it is a county attorney or whatever the case may be, is that there's a mechanism to hold that guy accountable if he, in fact, does something nefarious. I mean, in theory, right? So there, there's a structure in place to hold an attorney that's employed by the state accountable. But the problem with elected sheriffs is there's not really any oversight. No. And actually, it is, I mean, it's similar to sheriff. There is, it is actually a problem with coroners as well, like problems with um, coroners changing causes of death, problems with coroners in Pennsylvania. There was one coroner of a county who wanted who labeled every um, accidental drug overdose as a homicide. So rather than labeling, <laughs> and under the theory that he sort of wanted to be able, he wanted to the to make it easier for prosecutors to prosecute the individual who might have provided that person um, drugs, he, he started to label, you know, every sort of opioid accidental overdose as a homicide, which is, which is a bit weird. So they do have this sort of weird, you know, ability to um, make these decisions. But yes, in any event, to, to return to the idea, um, that's correct, that sheriffs uh, certainly have very little oversight. I think, you know, elected county positions tend to have very little oversight um and in some ways they were intentionally designed to be that way i mean the sheriff is elected and isn't you know the theory was that sheriffs because they were not appointed or because they did not owe anyone their political position that they would be able to exercise their judgment in a way that would be independent of let's say the county board and the county board appoints people so you would have to be friends with the county board in order to get this position being uh beholden to other officials and so originally when the sheriff was elected that was the goal was to ensure that this person was like free from other encumbrances which makes some sense particularly when you when you think about the way in which politics was often dealt with particularly in sort of post kind of reconstruction 
America where, you know, a lot of the federal government sort of came in and set up offices and there was lots of money that was getting, that was flowing from the federal government into local governments that was being distributed by friends of friends and they were sort of giving friends of friends jobs and grants and and so this was like a, a something that was considered by some people to be quite a problem. In theory, it is a great way to, if it works right. I don't know what the perfect way is, but it's proved itself to be problematic, especially in the case. I think that there's so many levels of law enforcement in this country. There's town cop, there's the, you know, the municipality, there's the highway patrol, there's all these different jurisdictions. A lot of people, at least that just have a passing interest in, I don't know, not speeding or not getting pulled over on the highway, won't realize that the sheriff department isn't a part of another agency or a part of something. It's its own unit. I think there's about like 12,000 policing agencies in America. Um, And you're right, that ranges from like very small to very large. Policing a large urban area is very different from policing a rural area. In all of policing, one of the most important doctrines is what everyone would call discretion, um, which is basically the idea that no law enforcement agent would ever arrest every single person who was breaking every single law. That would be virtually impossible. And this is a well-established doctrine. Law enforcement agrees that this is a doctrine. The Supreme Court agrees that's a doctrine. The surprising part of this, also this doctrine, is that the Supreme Court has similarly and emphatically determined that law enforcement actually does not owe a duty to the individual who seeks protection. So there is no, so one might ask, like, what are the rights and duties of law enforcement more generally towards community members? And in fact, what we see is there is no law or guarantee that law enforcement will protect community members, right? There's no, there's no sort of guarantee for individual protection. So if I were to call, if someone was to break into my house and I were to call a law enforcement agency, there is no requirement that they come to help. What the fuck? No, there is no requirement that they help. And there are um, terrible stories. There's a Supreme Court case um, involving Castle Rock. It's called the Castle Rock case. And it involves a woman whose husband kidnapped her children and she called the police department to locate her husband and they just didn't did not um and they did not do it so a bit about the castle ruling jessica gonzalez requested a restraining order against her estranged husband and it prohibited the husband from seeing gonzalez or their three daughters except during prearranged visits a month later Gonzalez's husband abducted the three children. Gonzalez repeatedly urged the police to search for and arrest her husband, but the police told her to wait until later that evening to see if her husband brought the children back. During the night, Gonzalez's husband murdered all three children and then opened fire inside police station, where police returned fire and killed him. Gonzalez brought a complaint in the federal district court alleging that Castle Rock police had violated her rights under the Due Process Clause of the Constitution by willfully or negligently refusing to enforce her restraining order. The district court dismissed the complaint. On appeal, however, a panel for the Tenth Circuit found that Gonzalez had a legitimate procedural due process claim. This took place in 
the town of Castle Rock, Colorado, which is outside of Denver a ways. And it was heard in the U.S. Supreme Court on back in 2005. And the Supreme Court held that, in fact, these officers had no requirement to help her, even though she had an order of protection and she had custody, right? She sort of had all the proper documentation. He, her ex-husband had plainly broken the law, but, but she could not make law enforcement help her. Um, it's a terrible case. It's, it's a really terrible and tragic case. Um, you know, and similarly, there are cases in which police, transit police in New York have walked away when people are being assaulted because so there's sort of no requirements that they help you know that is not to say that people go into law enforcement and that's their idea but just as a, as a legal supposition it's not a requirement when you take that in mind that we, there's an unsettled notion of what they should be doing in that light when we get to a county sheriff or the constitutional sheriff movement in some ways what they're doing is not wholly illogical it's not that far of a leap to say, well, if I have options of what laws to enforce and how, and I don't want to arrest people who have illegal handguns, let's say, let's say an 18-year-old with a shotgun he's not supposed to have, and it's a rural area, and he borrowed his dad's gun, a person might look at that and think that was a pretty reasonable exercise of discretion, that we're not going to arrest every teenager who borrows his father's gun. Um, so the step from that to saying, well, I'm not going to arrest anyone with an illegal gun is in some ways, but it's sort of an interesting, like we want law enforcement to use their discretion, but there feels like there's something wrong when they're using their discretion in a way that seems purely intended to achieve a political purpose, right? So similarly with mask orders, I think most reasonable people don't want police officers or sheriff deputies to arrest every person who pulls their mask down. I don't think that would be a good way, you know, it doesn't seem like a good way to solve the problem, but when sheriffs say, well, we're not enforcing mask orders at all because we think they're wrong, that doesn't feel like a useful exercise of discretion. And so, what I think is interesting is that they sort of take this idea of discretion and and then have created their own doctrine to which they say, well, because we could exercise this discretion and because in many places as sheriff, uh, they are elected and in many rural places, as you point out, they might be the only law enforcement agency that they therefore have no duty to anyone other than, as they sometimes say, the Constitution, right? I, I only enforce the Constitution, and I don't have to do what the governor says or the board or anybody else, which is interesting to me because it is, it is in part true. But I think that what feels wrong is that they're doing it, it's happening for a plainly political purpose and to advance a specific political agenda that you know, once you scratch beneath the surface, you realize is not sort of pure. To your point about not getting a kid in trouble for borrowing his dad's shotgun, because I mean, come on, when, but when it's more organized, when it's um, campaigned on, uh, 
when it's advocated for as an actual rule or law enacted under local control auspices, you know? Um, and I, so that, that to me is just, it, it, it's, it's weird. And um, I had no idea those things existed until 2016 when it started getting some traction out West. Right. And I, I mean, I do agree with you that we see, you know, I think in part because of the constitutional sheriff movement, which came, I mean, the constitutional sheriff movement came from other related kind of what they call far right white supremacy adjacent movement. So it's, it, it, it comes to that same root. Um, we also know that the NRA helps to fund some of these gun measures. So the NRA provides funding. Um, the NRA provides language to sheriffs to use as just as you point out, Alex says. So we, you know, it's also quite clear that this is not an individual sheriff making an individual decision, but rather this sort of coordinated political movement. And I think in this time, what what is more pressing and bothersome, particularly I think with the anti-mask sheriffs, we see this, that it becomes more of a, not that the sheriffs are sort of good-heartedly making a decision on the community members that they know so well, but rather they're making decisions based on the notion that local control is the most important thing. And I think it's, you know, we also start to see a lot of divisions, you know, coastal versus uh, non-coastal counties, rural versus urban, which I think is a very important division when you're looking at sheriffs. And it tends to be rural sheriffs are the ones who tend to, you know, they tend to be, um, want gun sanctuaries, they're the ones who are not enforcing mask orders, et cetera. I mean, and, you know, to some extent, this, this also comes from kind of changes in America and the importance of the county level. So because every county elects their own sheriff, when you gather a collection of sheriffs in a state, so Oregon, for example, every county in Oregon has one sheriff, no matter how populous. Um, and you live in a more like rural state, right? So you understand like you might have sheriffs from a county that's like very, very rural and sheriff from a county that's like very, very populous, yet each one of them is a sheriff and each one of them in theory exerts the exact same amount of power. And so what that does is it starts to tip the balance sort of disproportionately in favor of rural sheriffs. It gives those sheriffs more power than they might normally have were they, were they operating on a basis of population distribution. So it, it's sort of this, you know, one reason why sheriffs resist getting rid of their position is a lot. I mean, they resist, getting, they resist eliminating their position, but mostly they want to keep their jobs, but also because for many, it is the way in which these, these more rural and less populated counties get to retain quite a lot of power. They, they can have quite a lot of power at the state legislature. They can have quite a lot of power at the national level, which is like where I think we're seeing the greatest urgency that we see sheriffs because, you know, the Republican Party has aligned itself with the far right. We see these sheriffs who are aligned with the far right. They are empowered to, to act and to do so, and they're getting policies that are helping them. Um, and so I think that they, they now perceive that they have more influence. Um, 
it's it's interesting because there's actually also always been some amount of conflict between sheriffs and police. The idea of like the interloping police who doesn't know the community and the country sheriff who knows his people. So I was reading um, a book a book about the history of sheriffs in the West, Arizona and New Mexico, and they were talking about how they deep how much they deeply resented the intrusion of police because they were you know locking up quote unquote, the good kids. You don't want to deny that there's a huge kind of racial and gender component to this. Um, you know, it's, you know, sheriffs remain the whitest and malest elected position. Um, and, you know, we also know that sheriffs have more power in states that were uh, slave owning states. In the West, kind of the West, I would put it a slightly different category, but the West and slave owning states, sheriffs have a lot more power. Sheriffs have a lot less power in some places in the Northeast, in uh, Pennsylvania, for example, they, not all the sheriffs run jails. Manhattan, for example, the sheriff doesn't run the jail. Um, so, you know, you have some rural areas like upstate New York where sheriffs have a lot more power, but you also have patches where sheriffs have a lot less power. Um, Connecticut, for example, got rid of sheriffs. They could consolidate what they needed to do within a state department, which might be harder uh, in a bigger state like California. But, you know, when you look at a state like California, you also can clearly see, I think, the push-pull of local versus state power. I mean, that's why I think California keeps coming up because you have huge gaps in where the state is going versus like where individual counties want to go, huge differences between counties. That's where I think sheriffs exert that power. Um, it's the extra, it's almost like the extra judicial way that they work is, I mean, I can say that for most law enforcement, but I think sheriffs are unique in that way. And I think that's one of the reasons that I'm so fascinated um, by them and by the scope. And, you know, when we started talking about the coroner situation and how that's kind of a weird situation, sheriff or, or not, a friend of mine I was talking to who is a medicalogical death investigator in Iowa. Now, I'm, I'm from Iowa, but I live in New York now. She has talked to people that are, you know, at these different in these different states at her death investigator conferences, it's it's a a patchwork of systems that just don't make a lot of sense anymore or are born out of that history of the coroner's inquest where, you know, the coroner would call witnesses and they would come and say what they saw. And, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. I, I think it's it, like I said, I, I don't. I guess I'm always, I don't think it's wrong to be worried about who the sheriff is and what he or she thinks. But also we have to keep in mind that like on the whole, sheriffs are more similar than different. And therefore we cannot, we cannot expect to change the institution simply by putting different people in the same spot. It, it will, I mean, no, and no question, like in a harm reduction way, a better sheriff is better than, you know, you are, you are better off, of course. Jessica and I talked a little bit about why we were into researching sheriff's department. For me, it was 
after I started researching for an article, the Jacob Wetterling case. I remembered it because it happened in Minnesota, which was just up the interstate from my home state of Iowa. And I remember when he was abducted. Though I was working on an article about the development of a national sex offender registry, Jacob Wetterling's family was instrumental in getting a law passed within the state of Minnesota that would, for the first time, create a statewide database of sex offenders that all law enforcement agencies could tap into as well as share information with. So offenders could be found more readily. But it was really season one of In the Dark that sucked me in. It was a really great podcast, but particularly the episode about how how badly the Stearns County Sheriff's Department screwed up the case. While we know now that he was murdered, Jacob was murdered shortly after his abduction, the Sheriff's Department probably couldn't have saved his life. What they could have done is an exhaustive investigation. I mean, they did have the man that would confess to killing Jacob arrested and under surveillance early in the case. Imagine the comfort, at least I guess some measure of comfort, that would have been brought to the family if that guy had been arrested 30 years ago. Jessica came to sheriffs in a similar way or from a similar conclusion. She wondered why some sheriff departments were so incredibly bad at conducting investigations. And that conclusion that she came to, I think, falls in line with mine. Sheriff's departments are a law unto themselves. Where they are elected, they are the law. They have no oversight. In some cases, they have contentious relationships with other law enforcement agencies. Again, this isn't all sheriff's departments, but it's enough for us to be pretty damn concerned. Not only do they not have oversight, the bar for entry is low. In some states, like my home state of Iowa, I could go take up residence and run for sheriff. If I run a good campaign and get elected, the only requirement is that I go do some training within a year. So actually, now that I think about it, it's a really great idea. And maybe that's my retirement plan. 